1: Tonight on The Readout. Love them or hate them, the Proud Boys aren't going anywhere. We're here to stay. Oh, no, they're not going anywhere, former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio said in an interview last year. But a bunch of them will be taking their far-right extremism to prison, including Tarrio, who just a short time ago received a very long sentence for a seditious conspiracy. Also tonight, new reporting that Special Counsel Jack Smith is looking into Trump's fundraising off of false voter fraud claims, as some of Trump's co-defendants may be getting ready to throw Trump under the bus. Plus, the extreme gerrymandered maps that helped Republicans win the House are now rapidly getting struck down by the courts. Alabama is just the latest state to feel the judges' wrath. Good evening. I'm Jonathan Capehart in for Joy Reid, and we begin tonight with breaking news. The former national chairman of one of the most prominent neo-fascist white supremacist militia groups in the country is going to prison. Henry Enrique Tarrio was sentenced just a short time ago to 22 years in prison for a seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That is the longest sentence in any January 6th case so far, but notably less than the 33 years prosecutors were asking for. Judge Timothy Kelly told the court, quote, I don't have any indication that he's remorseful for the actual things that he's convicted of. Tario is the last of the five Proud Boys defendants to be sentenced. Other leaders in that group, as well as the Oath Keepers, are facing sentences between 10 and 18 years in prison, all of which is considerably less than what the prosecutors asked for. Now, even though Tario was seen the night before the insurrection in a Capitol Hill parking garage alongside Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes, he wasn't actually at the Capitol on January 6th. He was at a hotel in Baltimore. The Proud Boys leader was arrested days prior for his actions at another pro Trump rally where he burned a Black Lives Matter banner that he stole from a D.C. church and was ordered to stay out of the city. Still, Prosecutors today called Tario's behavior a calculated act of terrorism and warned that the Proud Boys came dangerously close to succeeding in their plot to use violence to overturn the 2020 election, telling the judge, "...there was a very real possibility we were going to wake up on January 7th in a full-blown constitutional crisis with the federal government in complete chaos." That is what revolution means, and that is what he openly perused, and that is what he very nearly achieved. And it didn't take rifles and explosives. Joining me now, Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence and MSNBC National Security Analyst, and Andy Campbell, Senior Editor at the Huffington Post and author of the book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. Uh, Frank, Andy, thank you both very much for coming to the readout. Frank, your reaction to not only Tario's sentence, but also the sentences of all these high-level Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who've gotten far less than what prosecutors asked for.
2: Yeah, there's good news, bad news here with, with these sentences of the Proud Boys, and that is that they're stiff, they are severe, But they are often, as with Enrique Tarrio today, under the guidelines range for federal sentencing guidelines. Particularly interesting to me is the fact that the judge, Judge Kelly today, as he's done before with Proud Boys, has allowed what's called a terrorism enhancement. That is, while we have no federal law against terrorism, if you're committed of crimes and they are terrorist related, you can get dinged for that at sentencing with an enhancement. He allowed that to happen, but yet he came in under the Mm. guidelines, which would have started the discussion at 27 years. So I'm not satisfied that these are severe enough, but they do send a message to people like Tario and others who are contemplating violence on behalf of their ideology.
1: So given what you just said, Frank, so then the the terrorism enhancement made no difference uh, in, in Tario's sentencing, did it?
2: Well, it's possible. I can't get inside Judge Kelly's head, but it's possible that without allowing the terrorism enhancement, we would have seen an even lower sentence. Hmm. So that that is possible. The judge is allowed to go below sentencing guidelines or above sentencing guidelines if he or she wants to. The concern here that I'm having is this judge seems not to understand that what Tario did should be uh, listed in the dictionary next to the definition of domestic terrorism. We define domestic terrorism in the law, and it is what Tario did. did. It's the use of force to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or a government or its conduct for policy or political ideology. That's what he did. He's a terrorist and he will spend more than two decades in prison.
1: Well, well, sure. He'll spend more than two decades in prison. But now I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, agreeing with you, Frank. Why, why are they getting sentences that are less than what prosecutors are asking for, given what they're accused of doing? And also given what we watched live on television that fateful day.
2: You know, I think what we're seeing, very interestingly, is this is similar issue to what law enforcement and the intelligence community was wrestling with in the days and weeks prior to January 6th. That is the seeming inability to see ourselves as a threat, particularly a terrorist threat, right? Our own American citizens. And now it seems to me this problem has now fallen on the bench, the federal bench, that's also looking at this going I don't know. I, nothing really blew up. I'm not sure. This doesn't look like a bombing to me. I, I don't get it. And they're not understanding the reality we're living in today, which is that the domestic terrorism problem is here to stay. We have an insurgency in this country that needs to be dealt with. And it does match the definition mm-hmm. of domestic terrorism.
1: Mm-hmm. A- Andy, you quite literally wrote the book on the Proud Boys. Talk about who exactly Enrique Tarrio is and where did, this, did his influence come from?
3: Right. Enrique Tarrio uh, has been the Proud Boys chairman uh, since 2018 when their founder, Gavin McGinnis, stepped down. He got involved in politics uh, uh, around the same time uh, as Trump rose uh, in Miami-Dade County, Florida. And it was there that he met people like Roger Stone, Trump's top confidant, um, and also members of the Proud Boys. Um, He realized that through the Proud Boys, he could put a violent edge um, to his political grievances. And that's exactly what the Proud Boys do uh, for Mm -hmm. a living, right? And so Mm -hmm. he took the mantle here and realized that if the Proud Boys are seen as a fight gang on the street, they're going to dissolve pretty quickly. Um, So he wanted to make them more of a political monster. And sure enough, like you said, the Proud Boys probably aren't going away because a lot of them have been running for office as Enrique Tario told them. Mm-hmm. And even as their leaders sit behind bars today, uh, the Proud Boys are mobilizing at rapid clip. They're, they're taking local seats at school boards and local Republican committees in Florida. Um, they're really trying to go for something more politically legitimate here. And and Enrique Tario was a big part of making that happen, happen for them.
1: I want to pick up on your your um, quote here, like political mon- turning the Proud Boys uh, into a political m- monster. You know, Tario delivered a statement to the judge today before he was sentenced in which he said, and I quote, I am not a political zealot. When I get back home, I want nothing to do with politics, groups, activism,
3: or rallies. Do you buy that? Well, Tario, between jail stints, talked to me on the phone and told me that Uh, Going forward, he would lie directly to anyone asking him about his involvement with the Proud Boys uh, or the national organization. So he's a self-described liar. But but again, his effect uh, and the Proud Boys effect through January 6th on American politics, Judge Kelly hit the nail on the head. He said this week, that day broke our tradition of peacefully transferring power, which is among the most precious things we had as Americans. Notice I said had, he said, We don't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a really important point is the the way uh, that the Proud Boys affected American politics going forward is they've dissolved the trust and safety element of our election process. And so we are in a new crisis following January 6th, uh, one that's not going to be tamped down uh, with these sentences. Hey, Andy, uh, picking up on what you just said, you talked
1: to him, you talked to Enrique Tarrio uh, a couple of times. Just wondering, how do you think
3: he's uh, reacting to his sentence? Uh, I mean, I I think every proud boy uh, who got sentenced over the last week did some element of, of crying on the stand. Some of them saying that they regretted their actions and that they were just kind of caught up in the moment. Or argued that Trump made them do it. Um, but these are guys who are very good at projecting themselves as uh, uh you know legitimate people uh and normalized citizens, but but in reality, they're excited about what they did. All of them celebrated in the immediate aftermath. Tario said two hours after uh, uh, the January 6th riders st- stood down that he would do it again. Um, and, and, and he would have kept the Capitol if he were there physically. Um, so I think that they're sad about the sentences. But I, I also think that they and their Proud Boys members who aren't in jail today are, are still excited about what they were able to get going. Mm. And to that point, Frank, um, I want to
1: show people um, and remind people of a very notable moment from the first 2020 presidential debate. Watch this. Are
4: you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups? Sure. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacists would right you like supremacists. Me to white proud
1: supremacists boys. and white supremacists and white supremacists and white
3: supremacists. Stand back and stand by.
1: And so, Frank. Two quick questions. How much do you think that message from the then president influenced the Proud Boys uh, to do what they did on January 6th? And and do you think that um, the sentences that have been meted out to the to the Proud Boys will dissuade people from acting on what the then president said in 2020?
2: So we don't need to engage in conjecture as to what uh, the Trump statement stand back and standby did for the Proud Boys. They've, some of them have actually told us what what it did. It actually increased membership and it actually empowered and and inspired them. So they saw that as kind of a call to action. Whether Trump meant it or not really doesn't matter. That was the effect that it had on them. As for severe sentences. Again, it's a good news, bad news scenario, and I liken it to my work in international terrorism during my career, because with Al Qaeda, for example, when you take the head off the snake, when you either imprison or neutralize international terrorist leaders, That's a good thing. They can't direct and coordinate, command and control. But what happens to the group is they become decentralized and they morph and transform into something else. And that's what's happening to the Proud Boys. And Andy mentioned it. You're talking about people now running for office, Mm -hmm. going local, as they say, PTA meetings, board uh, board of ed meetings, election uh, volunteers. This is in a way almost worse because you don't necessarily know where to find them and they don't look like they're about to commit violence. But it could be even worse because what they're about to commit is an attempt to steal democracy away from Americans. That, that's the concern.
1: Stealing democracy under the guise of law, uh, following the law. Frank Vigluzzi, Andy Campbell, thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. And up next on The Readout, Trump's White House chief of staff pleads not guilty to taking part in a plot to overturn election results in Georgia amid fresh signs that Trump's co-defendants are already starting to turn against him. The Readout continues
5: after this. We can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case were scheduled to be arraigned tomorrow in a Fulton County courtroom, but all of them have now waived that right and have entered pleas of not guilty. And while all of them have followed Trump's lead in waiving their court appearance, it does not appear that all of them are showing their unwavering support for him. Politico reports that some have already begun placing the blame at the feet of the twice impeached, four times indicted on 91 counts former president, including three of the Georgia fake electors, Sean Still, Kathleen Latham and David Schaefer, who have asserted in court documents that their actions were all taken at Trump's direction. And the former and Trump's former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, used his hearing last week to downplay his role, including in the infamous phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, especially compared to Trump's role. Meadows' lawyer pointed to his client's limited speaking role on the call and in court asked Raffensperger, quote, He didn't make a request that you change the vote totals, Mr. Meadows himself. Correct, Raffensperger replied. And in pure Trump fashion, the famed grifter is continuing to fundraise not only on his mugshot, but also on the fact that he isn't even appearing at tomorrow's arraignment, all while continuing his attacks on Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Joining me now, former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid, professor at the University of Michigan Law School and MSNBC legal analyst, and Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you both very much for coming to the readout. Uh, Barb, let me start with you. How likely is it that we will see more of the co-defendants point the blame at Trump?
6: I think we're going to see quite a bit of this, Jonathan. I mean, at its milder end, we'll see things like I was acting at the direction of the former president. I was just following orders. My job is to do what he asked me to do. I think, though, those defenses are likely to fail because uh, following an illegal order is itself illegal. But one other point to remember is, in addition to the 18 co-defendants in the Georgia indictment, there are 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Those are people already signed up. To cooperate against Donald Trump, so uh, so often we see that cooperators as the trial date near trial date nears increase in numbers. So among those nineteen people on the uh, the defendant list, I think we can see a paring down of that number as more agree to cooperate and cut themselves a deal to get lenience in their sentencing.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, tomorrow, Judge McAfee will hold a a hearing to consider the motions by uh, Cheeseboro and and Sidney Powell to sever their trials from the other co-defendants legally. Could the judge say to everybody whether they've asked for a speedy trial or not or a severance or not, you're all going to trial in October?
6: He could in theory, but I think it's unlikely, and that's because he wants to make sure that the defendants all get due process. And I think the request to have additional time to prepare for trial seems reasonable. October strikes me as quite quick. Uh, A defendant has a right to a speedy trial, but is not required to have a speedy trial. They are entitled to sufficient time to get their defense together. Now, the government, of course, also has a right to a speedy trial, so a judge has to sort of balance those interests. So it seems more likely that the likely outcome is to sever the cases, allow those who want that speedy trial to go to trial in October, and then for the others to set another trial date, maybe see how this list gets pared down based on guilty pleas, and set a trial date that's a little more reasonable for the remaining defendants.
1: So, so Tia, as we all know, uh, Fulton County DA Fawny Willis, she brought a RICO charge. That's why all 19 of these folks are jammed in into this one case. But if if judges grant the grant, the motions to sever these cases, is the D.A. prepared to try not one big case, but say three, four or 17 individual cases?
7: I think if we were to ask D.A. Willis if she had to do it all separately, could she? I think she would say yes. Um, You know, she's said all along that she's taken this very seriously and has really tried to be as thorough as possible, as deliberate as possible. That being said, that would not be her wish. That would not be her preference. I think um, I think she probably knows at this point, especially with those who've asked for speedy trials, that she won't be able to prosecute all 19 together. Maybe she knew that all along. Um, and I think they're prepared for perhaps going in groups. Um, but if they decided to do them all individually, that would become very cumbersome just from a logistics standpoint. But I think she would ha- she would be prepared to roll with whatever mm-hmm. came her way.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Barb, today, uh, was, you know, Ken Cheeseborough, this afternoon, um, he filed a motion to dismiss the indictment against him completely, and saying any illegal actions he may have taken would be a violation of federal law, not state law, under the Supremacy Clause, Clause, the charges against him are invalid. I'm no lawyer, but that seems like a Hail Mary pass. I mean, your thoughts on this, is that even going to stand up?
6: I don't think so. You know, I think for those uh, defendants who were federal officers at the time, They engaged in the conduct that's alleged in the indictment. I think they've got a a, a plausible argument here. I think ultimately it fails because what it looks at is if they are acting solely within the four corners of their job description, then they are entitled to governmental immunity under the Supremacy Clause. Uh, But to the extent they were acting beyond the scope of their authority, even a Mark Meadows, if he is doing campaign activity, which is not what taxpayers pay him to do, instead of doing his job as chief of staff, he doesn't have that defense And so for someone like Kenneth Cheesebro, who was not even a federal official at the time of the alleged conduct, I think that defense is much less valid. Now, it does say, or people acting under their direction. So maybe he's latching onto that language, but I think that it fails not only for Kenneth Cheesebro, but even those who actually were federal officers at the time of the conduct alleged in the indictment.
1: Mm -hmm. You you know, Tia, as I'm sitting here and thinking about the actions that special counsel Jack Smith is continuing to do in his cases, um, even though indictments have been handed down, he's still investigating— um, the fundraising angle. I'm wondering in, in, um, Fulton County, even though she's got this one, this big Rico, this big Rico case, is she, is D.A. Fonnie Willis still continuing to investigate, run down leads in this case? And might we see more indictments down the road?
7: I mean, I would never say never because I am not on the inside, but I will say that the indication from the Fulton County case is that they did a lot of their homework in advance. Remember, they had that special uh, grand jury that talked to witnesses, kind of went very wide, as we've seen with looking at the case from all aspects. And so when the regular grand jury, when Fonnie Willis brought um, potential charges and asked them to indict, and they did, those 19 It's really the Fulton County case is already very broad. You're talking about election interference, but in very different ways with false testimony to legislative hearings. um, The 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 abuse toward the election workers, the breach of the machines in Coffee County. So I think Fulton's pretty broad. But again, I'm not on the inside, so I'll never say never.
1: Mm-hmm. And, Barb, one more g- quick question to you. You know, jury selection in the trial of former White House aide Peter Navarro for refusing to testify to the House January 6th hearings started today. And Navarro claims Trump authorized him to ignore a subpoena from Congress. And The New York Times writes, de- writes describing Mr. Navarro's defense as quote, pretty weak swass, sauce, Judge Meta emphasized that he had presented no written communications or even a smoke signal that would bolster his contention. I still don't know what the president said, Judge Mehta said. I don't have any words from the former president. I don't think anyone would disagree that we wish there was more here from from President Trump. Uh, Mr. Navarro's lawyer, Stanley Woodward Jr., replied. Now, given Navarro is prepared to face prison for Trump and Trump is nowhere to be seen helping Navarro, what do you think Trump's other co-defendants should take from this case?
6: Yeah. So Peter Navarro is essentially begging Donald Trump to step in and say, yes, I I want to assert executive privilege here. You were doing this for me. And instead, he is getting crickets, complete radio silence. And so I think it just demonstrates what we have seen again and again. And that is with Donald Trump, loyalty is a one way street. And so I think other defendants should take note that if they're looking for Donald Trump to offer some help, uh, that help is unlikely to be coming.
1: Barbara McQuaid, Tia Mitchell, thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. And up next, the courts step in to defend democracy against Republican attempts to gerrymander its way to perpetual political power. We'll be right back. House Republicans are working with one of the narrowest majorities in U.S. history, and it would be even closer if not for aggressive Republican gerrymandering in southern states, including Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. In June, Alabama was repudiated by the U.S. Supreme Court for drawing a congressional map that violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting the power of Black voters, a decision that could also impact the other states I mentioned. Recognizing the threat to their slim majority, Republicans in the Alabama legislature ignored the Supreme Court's directive and submitted a new map that, for a second time, failed to create two majority black districts as demanded by the courts. Today, a three-judge federal court panel rejected the new map and ordered a special master to draw new districts for the state. The judges wrote... We have now said twice that this Voting Rights Act case is not close, and we are deeply troubled that the state enacted a map that the state readily admits does not provide the remedy we said federal law requires. We are disturbed by the evidence that the state delayed remedial proceedings, but ultimately did not even nurture the ambition to provide the required remedy." Late this afternoon, Alabama's attorney general announced he would appeal the decision directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And here's why. In July, the Alabama political reporter news site reported that Alabama Republicans, with the help of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, intentionally ignored the court because they had intelligence that Justice Brett Kavanaugh would be open to rehearing the case. Joining me now... John Bisognano, president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and strategist and MSNBC political analyst. Thank you both very much for being here. So, John, what exactly does this mean for Alabama? Thank you so much, Jonathan. So when Attorney General Holder founded our organization, it was founded on democracy
9: and fairness. And that's what you're seeing play out in the courtroom today. And the exciting thing is that for Alabama— Black voters, for the first time in many years, are going to have the ability to elect a, a member to Congress of their choice. And that's not something that they currently have. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're facing a new reality on the precipice of this next election cycle that currently has been barred by Republican gerrymandering.
1: But, I mean, and that's great. That is that is the glass <laughs> half full <is> <laughs> view. But the Supreme Court told them, don't do this. Go back and do it again. And they said no. No. I mean, you guys, your whole job is to anticipate these sorts of things. Is that something you anticipated? That's right. And I think the reality
9: of what you're asking is that we do find ourselves in an era of perpetual redistricting. It's Many people think of redistricting in cycles or 10-year cycles after the census. It happens shortly thereafter. And we're currently facing a reality where changes are happening very, very quickly and frequently. And our cases are not going to stop
1: because Republicans continually block fairness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Cornell, I mean, I, I get stuck on this point that The Supreme Court said Alabama do this. And Alabama said, uh, this is 1960. (laughs) This is 1960 calling. We're not going to listen to you. Well, you know, this
8: story connects to the story that you were just covering, right? There is a lawlessness and a I don't give a darn about the rule of law that is permeating through through particularly the Republican Party right now in and, and a, and a in a way that that you can clearly see they don't care actually what the courts say, right they're, they're, You're gonna have to make them <laughs> enfranchise African Americans. But also look Jonathan, it is a story as, as, as old as the South, right I mean my, my father used to say uh, as a southerner, you know blacks and whites could always figure out ways to get along in the South. Blacks just couldn't have power. And the moments that blacks want to have power, that dynamic that dynamic begins to change right now. so you know this has been a defining issue for the for You know, I would argue in American history since World War II, where African-Americans and people of color trying to fight to get enfranchised, trying to fight to have political power, and those playing tribal politics trying to block them from getting
1: political power. Fight for political power that is guaranteed to them by the U.S. Constitution. Um, How quickly, John, will we see— say, these Alabama maps and um, maps in other states. Um, I'm trying to. Louisiana, 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 Florida, 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 Georgia, Georgia. How soon will they be in place in time for the 2024 presidential election? Yeah, we do anticipate that relief. And it's critical that we get it,
9: because, again, as you noted previously, these are constitutional realities. I mean, we tell our kids when they go to school that they live in a democracy that is that values the vote. And right now, In Alabama, there are individuals that their vote doesn't count. And so ensuring that is critical.
1: So I I read from this 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 story um, in the Alabama, the Alabama reporter where, um, you know, it's this strategy. They've got this intelligence that, you know, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wants to reconsider this uh, reconsider this case. Um, that they were ignoring because the whole goal is to invalidate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which would completely just it would no longer be in existence. And what's interesting here is, as, as they write, um, it's a plan concocted by D.C.-based attorneys and championed by Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall, the same person who today is filing to get this Alabama case directly to the U.S. Supreme Court.
9: Yeah, I think that we're going to continue to see them throw everything against the wall. That's something that we've been anticipating and been preparing for. I mean, we're we're not backing down. This is going to be a complica- a long, complicated fight, uh, but we're here for it. That's but the exciting. All, but point. we also
8: have to be acknowledge that the, the fix might be in. I mean, would it be all it, given what you've seen happen? Would you be all surprised that if, in fact, the fix is in and they know, in fact, if they get this case back to to Brett Kavanaugh, he's going to he's going to do their bidding. I wouldn't be surprised. And I think when you look at where majority of Americans are right now on on their respect for the Supreme Court, I don't think any of us would be surprised by it.
1: I mean, as the story goes on to say, according to APR sources, Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall is the main driver behind the non the non-compliance strategy. And then it, th- there are bigger implications here than just Alabama districts um, or um, or even compliance with the Supreme Court. We're talking about control of the House of Representatives. Um, how concerning is it, Cornell, that the Speaker of the House <laughs> is part is part of all this? I guess it gets to what you were just saying. When you said <laughs> the fix was in, I guess that's what you were getting I, at. So
8: I, that's what I'm getting at, There,
1: <laughs> that, the fi- that the fix is
8: in. Look, They had, Republicans just had, and and, and look at all the data, it says they just had an electorate that was as Republican as they've had in a long, long time. And Democrats picked up Senate seats and they fought Republicans to a draw, which was supposed to be a tsunami election. They're not going to get a better election and a better electorate than they just had. And they just barely took took the House by a narrow margin. If if. If, come 2024, and we see and we see normal-sized t- normal turnout, and we see people of color engaging, and we see voting maps that are not rigged, the Republican Party—they're they're no longer a majority party. They haven't been a majority party in, so, in some time. When was the last time a Republican won, in fact, a majority? They are no longer a majority party, and they realize that. That's why I would argue the fix is in.
1: And so, okay, so the fix is in. But as Cornell said, you know, if, if people get out and vote, and they come out and vote, um, as they did in the twenty twenty two midterm elections, you can stop the the red wave. You can stop um, stop these efforts. But is that reason enough for, I mean, basically, do you get to just sit back and relax because these, these gerrymandered districts are being knocked back by the courts?
9: No, I, we haven't been sitting back and relaxing for a long time. I think the reality is we're going to have to fight every step of the way because of all of the barriers that Republicans continue to throw up. And Cornell, you're completely right. Republican Party currently is becoming uncomfortably comfortable with minority rule. And that's that's a situation that we're dealing with in Alabama right now. Right. As we noted, they came forward with a map that was they were unable to provide even a semblance of a reasonable map given a Supreme Court order. And so what we're moving forward into this reality, we need to continue to fight every step of the
1: way because they're simply not going to back down. I mean, just reading what the court said is it, like a rhetorical spanking. Um, deeply they, troubled. They, they, d- deeply deeply troubled. Trouble. Uh, the state's doing what the state—we told you. You Anyway, <laughs> Cornell Belcher, John P. Soniano, <laughs> thank you both very much for coming to the readout. And coming up, House Republicans want to hold the U.S. economy hostage again, this time threatening to shut down the government unless they get a laundry list of things from impeachment— uh, uh, A whole lot of things, including an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. (laughs) More next. The U.S. Senate returned to work today for a potentially chaotic September. The most important agenda item is funding the government to avert a government shutdown. But Republicans are instead focusing on launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The Republican-controlled House isn't back until next week, giving them just 11 working days before the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene says she won't support any government funding measure until the House votes to formally begin a Biden impeachment inquiry. And now she's playing the victim after the White House condemned her threat, warning Republicans not to let the, quote, hardcore fringe of their party force a shutdown. Joining me now, Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC political analyst. Charlie, great to see you. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene complained the White House attacked her and tweeted a list of demands, including everything from impeaching President Biden to ending the war and support for the war in Ukraine. It seems like you've even got Kevin McCarthy dangling impeachment as an alternative to a shutdown at this point. So how do Republicans pull this plane out of a nosedive, Charlie?
4: Um, you're, you ask that as if they want to pull the plane out of the nosedive. I well, mean, this is deeply unserious from a governing pers- uh, perspective. But what she's asking for is not a negotiation. She's asking for ransom because she has a hostage. And the hostage, of course, is Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy um, will give her everything that he feels he has to. But um, we are now in the theater of the absurd, tying a government shutdown to the impeachment of Joe Biden. Of course, these are, these are not the same things. And a serious grown-up members of Congress would would, un, would understand all of this. But um, in many ways, this is kind of a gift to the White House uh, because
1: uh, they, they could not ask for a better foil than Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, well, that's true. And among the other things that she's asking for is, you know, defunding special counsel Jack Smith's office, yeah. uh, among a few other things. So, you know, Unlikely. Charlie... Right. Um, there are some Republicans who are against the idea of impeachment. Um, some have noted there's no evidence and others called it, quote, impeachment theater and a distraction from real issues. So can, can this backfire on McCarthy inside his caucus? Well, of course,
4: I mean, just thinking of the conversation we're having right now where he's being held hostage by somebody who is demanding all of these things that, that are on their face, absolutely absurd. And, of course, um, impeachment is not about evidence. It is about theater. And the question is, you know, will there be 218 Republicans that are willing, essentially, to to die on that hill to say, OK, um, instead of actually doing the nation's business, keeping the lights on, protecting the economy from a crash, uh, we're going to go through this uh, kabuki theater of impeaching Joe Biden as a way to protect Donald Trump. Um, and we'll, we'll have to see. Um, but what we do know is that Kevin McCarthy cannot say no to too many of the Marjorie Taylor Greens because his margin is just so thin. So we're going to see what Kevin McCarthy is made of. And I I say that rhetorically because, of course, we we know exactly what he's made of.
1: (laughs) J-E-L-L-O. All right. Let's Mm. move from the House to the Senate. (laughs) Let's move from the House to the Senate, Charlie. The secretaries of the Army, Navy and and the Air Force warned Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville to stop his block on military promotions in a new uh, op-ed for The Washington Post, writing, it is putting our national security at risk. Each of us has seen the stress this hold is inflicting up and down the chain of command. There's a domino effect, upending the lives of our more junior officers, too, Looking over the horizon, the prolonged uncertainty and political battles over these military nominations will have a corrosive effect on the force. And according to The Washington Post, 301 positions have been blocked over six months by Senator Tupperville, including the leaders of the Army, Navy and Marine Corps and the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Charlie, what's it going to take for Republicans to actually start pressuring Toberville to drop his blockade?
4: Well, this is stunning because it is so outrageous. If a, if a Democratic senator was doing this to our armed forces, endangering our national security in this way, um, you would have the entire Republican Party with its hair on fire. Um, and it is amazing to me that Mitch McConnell is letting Tommy Tuberville hold um, uh, hold the U.S. military hostage this way. I'm also somewhat puzzled, and I haven't gotten a good answer uh, to this, uh, why uh, the Democratic majority just does not uh, hold up or down votes on these non- nominations. But there's no question about it. I mean, that op-ed piece is truly remarkable because these are not political appointees. These are the leaders of our armed force, and they are um, making an appeal to a political party that used to be or used to claim that it was the party of national security that had the back of the U.S. military. And this is just another data point of how far the Republican Party has gone from um, its roots, and and not, not just the roots from the Reagan years, but just a few years ago. Absolutely inconceivable mm-hmm. imagining a Republican Party, you know, of the Republican Party
1: of John McCain, for example, tolerating this kind of behavior. I mean, it truly is stunning. But, you know, one person you didn't mention in all this, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader mm-hmm. in the Senate. Where is he? Yeah.
4: This is an excellent question. Uh, Mitch McConnell um, is a very, very powerful leader, uh, and he knows how to keep people in line. This is a huge embarrassment, um, not only to his caucus, but uh, it is an issue of putting country before some, you know, petulant political prank like this. Um, And uh, again, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, There ought to be a lot more focus on Mitch McConnell, why are you allowing your caucus, a member of the Republican minority, to be able to hold the,
1: the, the military uh, down in this particular way? It's extraordinary. It really is. It is ex- you know, Mitch McConnell says he doesn't support the hold, so the question remains, why won't he stop it? Charlie Sykes, thank you, as always. We'll be right back.
9: When will enough be enough? When will we elect leaders with the courage to stand up for us? Instead of a bunch of bullies and cowards who only do what their party says. When it's bullshit, I call it bullshit. What I do is fight for justice for real people because that's what Tennessee deserves. I'm not afraid to stand up to anyone when it comes to doing what's right for Tennessee. Especially Marsha Blackburn. And that's why I'm running for Senate.
1: That was Tennessee State Representative Gloria Johnson announcing her bid for a United States Senate. If nominated, the Democrat would face Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn, who's running for a second six year term in next year's general election. Johnson is one of the Tennessee three who protested in the state capitol for gun reform this April but wasn't expelled like her two Black colleagues. Jahan Jones writes much more about Johnson's run in our Readout blog. If she wants to become the first Democratic senator in Tennessee since Al Gore, she'll need to energize Democrats like never before. Read about that and more at msnbc.com slash readoutblog. And that's tonight's Readout.